Hello and welcome to Pre-Published. I'm Sophia. Phil Earle is the author of 20 books for children and young adults, including Being Billy, Bubble Wrap Boy and Demolition Dad. His latest novel is the Waterstones Children's Book of the Month for June 2021. So if you're listening to this episode soon after it's released, look out for When the Sky Falls in a Waterstones near you now. Phil was born in Hull, where he grew up wanting to play football for Hull City. His first job was as a care worker in a children's home, which I think brings a particular sensitivity to his writing. Nowadays, when he's not writing, he works as head of sales and marketing for the independent book publisher David Fickling Books, who published Philip Pullman among many outstanding children's authors. We talk about getting into reading through comics and graphic novels, agree on a book that's a masterclass in structure and characterisation, a checklist of excellence, Phil calls it, and the joy of the roller coaster of writing a story for the first time. When it comes to marketing, Phil believes in the power of the voice and is reassuringly passionate about supporting a writer through their career and not just the debut when they're the shiny new thing. We recorded this episode in May 2021. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Phil, welcome to Pre-Published. Thank you very much. Uh, It's lovely to be talking to you. And um, whereabouts are you at the moment? I am in my lounge uh, up in West Yorkshire with two sleeping dogs, which uh, is a very nice place to be. It sounds absolutely lovely. Lucky you. And we were just saying we need to get this done before kids need picking up from school. Oh, yes. So uh, working parents, um, (laughs) which is all fine. Yeah, we were saying also that we, we haven't seen each other for a long time because I'm, I'm kind of out of the, the, the children's writing world now. But I used to encounter you at various kind of school visits and things. And um, also as a teacher, you did a wonderful thing for the Scottish Book Trust, I think. You just yeah. recorded some little videos about writing, which I can't find anymore. And I thought they were absolutely lovely. Well, so if we've, if we've got time, I'd like to talk a little bit about how you talked about creating characters and various sure. things you really bring it to life Thank you. um your new book is out very soon isn't it when the sky it falls is. it is it's out um third of june so when we're recording now that's next week ah. um yes <laughs> are you doing anything for it what happens in in these days of sort of semi-lockdown um i'm just gonna uh, i mean i've been doing some zoom stuff already some zoom events and yeah. uh recording quite a few videos for people for sort of digital content online and then I'm going to try and get out in as safe a way as I can and, and go and sign as much stock as I can, really. Uh, there's, I've, I'm really lucky up in the north. I'm, I'm in sort of West Yorkshire and we've got an awful lot of really great little indies and some good waterstones up here. So the plan is just to get round as many as I can uh, right. over the next yeah. month. Yeah, I've taken a couple of weeks off work to sort of just concentrate on doing as much publicity as I can, really. At what age group is this one for? Um, I think... Phew, I mean, I think it's been positioned really sort of for readers who are a strong reader in year five, for example. So I think often children are reading Goodnight Mr. Tom around sort of end of year five, year six. I mean, interestingly, one of my friend's sons has just read it and he's 15 and he's still got a lot out of it. So it seems to have a nice, a decent sort of age span, really, which is really rather gratifying. And looking at the description of it, it sounds quite similar to Goodnight Mr. Tom in some ways, Second World yeah. War. Is it yeah. an evacuee kind of story? It is, but in, in reverse almost. Right. The, book, the book opens with um, a scene in a very smoky uh, London um, train station. 
uh, with children being shoehorned onto trains to be evacuated out to the safety of the countryside. Yet against the tide, one unruly, unhappy, very angry young man called Joseph, who was 12 years old, is being shepherded into the city because his oh, behaviour like is so poor that his his ageing grandmother, who's been left to look after him while his dad is fighting, has given up on him and packed him off to live with a, a distant friend down in the big bad city. So while the bombs are raging and all the kids are leaving the city, one boy is on his way back in just because his behaviour is so blooming terrible. Oh, I'm glad I asked you. That sounds so intriguing. Thank you. Um, good Night, Mr Tom is has always fascinated me as a book because, you know, people often ask, well, what, what can you put in a book for children? Mm. Um, and I know that, that in your books, you often, you know, really confront big issues that kids have to deal with, which I, mm. I think is a wonderful thing. And I'm always fascinated by that book because it's got some deeply dark things in it, yeah. but they are expressed in a way where the reader can kind of just take as much out of it as they want to. I think that it, yeah. it doesn't kind of force the trauma at you in a way that let's say a film does um how, how do you approach that with your writing kind of difficult issues um it, it's something that I've always been drawn to I think I don't know if that's just to do with the sorts of books that I've really enjoyed uh, reading myself I mean one, one of my favorite sort of young adult books is is S.E. Hinton's The Outsiders you know, and that's about a group of sort of late teen boys who have nothing, you know, no money, no future, no family, barely have a roof over their heads. But what they do have this is this amazing sense of, of brotherhood, that thing of walking over broken glass to do anything for each other. And yeah, and, and that left the, books like that and books like Skellig as well, which is one of the sort of I, I didn't really get into reading novels until I was in my 20s. And it was children's books that brought me in and books like Skellig and The Outsiders. They inspired me massively because, as you said, very quite rightly, there's there's a deafness of of touch. I I think I don't think there's any subject children can't deal with. I think yeah. it's just about finding the right. Well, it is about finding the right vocabulary, but I also don't think about it too much. I I, I don't write for children. I I write for me first and foremost. I'm I'm my first reader, especially because yeah. I don't plan my stories. I just jump in and write. So, um. I don't think it's quite instinctive for me. A lot of it just comes back to the sorts of books that I enjoy reading. That's what I want to try and emulate, I think. Oh, it's interesting that you say you're not a planner. <laughs> we'll, no. we'll have to come back to that. I am okay. such a planner. Um, but also, actually, you mentioned one of the things that, that I did want to talk to you about. Um, I I was talking to Natasha Ferrant yesterday, just the way these things have worked out, uh, and her episode will be uh, on the podcast too. Don't know which order I'm going to put these out in yet. Mm. Um, and and we were talking about how she got into reading, and and largely um, the Narnia books were, for example, you know, one of her ways into it. And and it was similar to me. She she really fell into it when she was a girl, and. I always feel uncomfortable when when I am doing a school visit and people, you know, say to me, "Miss, when did you start reading?" and you know, "What got you into it?" and and I have the sort of classic story, but I am always thinking there's going to be a kid or many kids in this class who don't read, and if they listen to me, they're going to think, "Oh well, I'm not like her. I can't do this then." Um, and and I know from um, from what you've said about yourself that you know you and, and now you know you got into reading later, and I find that quite inspirational for, for those kids actually. That you know, look at you now, uh, fifteen or whatever it is, books down the line. So so, how did you get into books, and and what what did you want to sort of do when you were when you were younger? Novels novels came to me later. Um, 
I, I, I think I got to the sort of age of 12, 13 and felt quite honestly like reading or the door to reading had been sort of closed in my face, really. I, I struggled with it. I really liked the idea of reading. I loved them as objects. I remember going to the library with my mum and, and looking, uh, especially in the sports section. I used to go and look at like the sports section, you know, it was just like full of Jeffrey Boycott autobiographies for cricket and things <laughs> like that. But, but I, I, I lacked the willpower or the staying power to, 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 to make my way through novels or, or anything that was, you know, substantially long or anything that was just words. Um, what I didn't realise was I always was a reader because comics was where it was for me. And, and I oh, was, so you're reading comics? I, I really was, yeah. But I, I, I had a real confidence issue around novels. I mean, it was it was a couple of things um, that, 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 that got me going. So Roy the Rover's comic, which was mm-hmm. 32 pages of comic strips, just about footy, which for me as a big football fan, that's what I wanted to do when I was a kid. I wanted to play for Hull City, which always gets a hoot of derision when I go into schools, <laughs> especially in Leeds near where I live. I can imagine. Um, but um, Roy the Rovers was big. The Beano was big for me. And, and as I grew older into my sort of teens, I discovered, you know, Marvel and, and DC. But also, oh, so things... you were a reader then? Absolutely. You, you were I, I turning was. pages. You were absorbing story. I was, but but I was told I wasn't. You know, yeah. if I'd have taken those things into school, you know, the, the response I got was, "Well, you're not a proper reader." Oh. You know, even even when. You know, even when, you know, so a, a book that really turned me around was, was Art Spiegelman's Mouse. Yes. You know, and, and obviously, you know, quite rightly, children are encouraged to, to read around the Holocaust. Yet even that book, which for me is, is masterful, I don't think there is a better book about that subject out there for me. But, but even that would have been met with derision and, and classed as not proper reading, you know. So, um, yeah, I didn't read the classics. I struggled, you know. I had to read Dickens and stuff for for um, GCSE and and A level, and it was a struggle. I I just didn't feel they were relatable to me. I think yeah. I'm quite choosy. I'm a bit picky. <laughs> Aren't we all? Yeah, absolutely. I don't think I could read Dickens now. Actually, I mean, I kind of mm. did then, but yes, I don't think I could be doing with it now. Mm. But um, I do find it heartbreaking when when. Yeah, I mean, particularly with boys, I suppose, you know, you do have a boy who's interested with story, as you so obviously were, and, and sort of encouraged with that. I mean, I do tell the story, but there was a school visit that I did once when the librarian said, um, if you don't mind, I'm really, really sorry, but can you just have your sandwiches sort of over here because, oh, we've got to do this thing. And I and I watched and they the bit where I'd been sitting in the library, they, they opened it up, it was lunchtime. And and all the boys came rushing in and they pulled out the beanbags and it was the comic section and they pulled out the comics and the graphic novels and they made themselves comfortable. And I just said to this librarian, I have never seen anything I like more. You know, I'm more than happy to make space for this. It was it was really heartening. Attitudes have changed now. I mean, I do still speak in a lot of schools and and and, you know, the vast, vast majority now recognise the importance that that kind of visual medium, you know, the, the marriage of words and pictures together on the page can make. You know, there are still some schools that scare me a little bit when I go in and they have, when they have dedicated reading time and, and, and the children aren't allowed to read anything that's illustrated, you know, which which just, it doesn't happen very often, but it does still happen. You know, it's like, no, this is dedicated reading time. So that means words and no pictures, which... To me, is I have to bite my lip when I'm the visiting author. Oh know? goodness, but, um, I would I would struggle with the lip biting on that one. Yeah, yes. yeah, it is. Wow. <laughs> um, so you've you've written um, a few books for young adults and mm. more books for um, that that lovely kind of year five, year six 
year seven, I guess, kind of age range. They're always my favourite kids to visit in school because they're still so enthusiastic. Absolutely. Whereas year nines are just kind of dead. (laughs) Nothing strikes fear into you more. Um, And you've written with Andy McNabb, is that right? I have. Yeah, I have. Um, I've, I've, I've done... Uh, so by August this year, it'll be 20, 20 books uh, published and three of those in, in collaboration, two with, with Andy and one with a very old dear university friend as well. And that, I, I'm, I found the collaboration thing really interesting and challenging and it made me work in a very different way because that mm. seat of the pants uh, sort of process that I have when I'm writing on my own obviously doesn't fly when <clears throat> excuse me it doesn't fly when you're working in collaboration with somebody you know that that simply can't work so I've been I used the word forced but it didn't feel like being forced by the end I found it a very enjoyable experience but I was certainly having to plan a lot more there um, and actually it was it was it was enjoyable, but I still wouldn't change the way I I, I work when I'm on my own. Yeah, no, I can imagine that. I, I was interested to see that uh, for one of the covers that it's got Andy's name on it, for example, and and yours at the bottom. So you're yeah. not ghostwriting; you are no. collaboratively writing, and I, I love that. Yeah, it felt really important. I mean, I was really lucky. Like um, my day job, still three days a week, I work for a I work for a publisher. I work for David Ficklin Books, and my first job in publishing was with uh, Transworld and Random House and children's books, and um, and so I got to work on Andy's selling Andy's books back then. So I'd met him quite a lot, okay. uh, and and found his story fascinating and inspiring because you know when he joined the army as a boy soldier, you know he had a reading age I think of about four. You know, and they started them on the Janet and John books there, and and um, right. I've never met a more driven individual than Andy. He's extraordinary. You know, his his, I mean, his sense of you know his his entrepreneurial spirit for starters, but also the just the application really. Do you know what I mean? I, I find yeah. that message really inspiring. So it was really quite interesting to 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 work with him in that way. And is that why you went into children's books to encourage people like him to read? It just excited me. That's why, I mean, I, I fell into children's books, you know, quite literally in that um, I'd had, I'd, I'd had, I'd worked in children's homes in my early 20s and then struggled with it. It affected my, my well-being and my mental health really quite, um, quite severely. And as a result, I took some time out to, to get myself well. And then I, I think, to be honest, I genuinely thought that I needed a job that wasn't going to... Um, stressed me out too much if I'm honest and I saw a yeah. job advertised it was a seasonal temp job in Ottaker's bookshop in Putney got that job liked it they asked me to stay on and after about six months of filing sort of banking books and thesauruses which wasn't massively <laughs> entertaining they, they, they kicked me into kids and and th- there was a woman called Leslie Preston who ran that section and Leslie, Leslie said well if this is going to work you need to read the stuff that's on the shelf because we work by hand selling we want you to um put books in children's hands and say read this which meant that I genuinely had to have read them and she gave me holes by Lewis Sacker and literally that book without sounding pretentious that book changed my life it sent me on a completely different path because that I I don't think there is a better written book out there for any age group if you want a masterclass on uh, structure, brevity, characterization, and plot. Then you, you, I don't think you can go. You can't go far wrong. It's a masterclass. 
completely agree with you. I remember my my old boy um, telling me that that's what he was reading at school, oh. and I got him to describe it to me. And he just started it, and he was well. It's like these boys, and they're out in the desert, and they're digging these holes, and they have to fill them in again. And I just thought this is torture. You're making my boy read this torture book. Oh. I can't bear it. And I was about to go storming in. I thought I should read it first. And I came away like you, thinking this is one of the best books I have ever read in my life, and my child is privileged to be yeah. able to read I mean, it. What, and, for me, what's fascinating about that book is that when you, if someone says, "Okay, what's it about?" You say, "Well, it's about a kid who who gets accused of of stealing a pair of trainers and is sent to the desert to dig a hole five by five every day." You say that to someone, they'll go yawn, move on. But yes. you know, it's it, it has everything. It literally, it's like it's like a tech a checklist, a tick list of excellence for me. And it's about the power of storytelling in many ways, isn't it? It's kind of got story within story at the heart Absolutely. of it, which is something I love. And yeah. as you say, beautifully short, which I always yeah. admire in a book. Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't think it's a surprise that, you know, that and Skellig and Lemony Snicket's books are three of the, the books that I often cite. And all of those are known for their brevity. I am a terrifically lazy reader. <laughs> I must be too, because I like that kind of thing as well. I love the story that um, the books written in the 50s after the Second World War are often very short because paper was rationed. So authors mm. like Graham Greene were asked to you know, yeah. keep it tight. And it like it. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I want to talk to you about your day job uh, very much. Yeah. But first of all, I'm interested in this I, the idea of the, the fact that you don't particularly plan as you write. As I say, I'm a planner. So do do talk me through how you get going on a book. Um, I am. Um, yeah, I don't plan uh, unless I'm working with someone else. I have um, for me, the most exciting thing is when that idea presents itself. Do you know what I mean? For me, there's. There's something wonderful about unearthing a little gem, often from the most mundane of kind of um, stories, in a way. So with When the Sky Falls, for example, it was a simple conversation on a campsite with a dear friend who told me about his dad during the Second World War. So his dad wasn't allowed to fight because he was ill, he had asthma. So every time the air raid siren rang, his dad was home guard and he had to grab a rifle and leg it to the zoo. And when he got to the zoo, he had to train the, the, the rifle through the bars of the lion's cage. Because if oh, if the if the goodness. Nazis dropped a bomb that knocked out the wall to the cage, his his dad had to shoot the lion before it went on the rampage. What a job! I mean, amazing, isn't it? So, like you know, so people have said to me, what, what, "Why aren't you writing about Dunkirk or or Pearl Harbor or you know the Normandy landings or whatever?" And it's like because other people can do that better for starters, but also it's the for me, I, I love unearthing these little rough diamonds, these little gems of stories. And for me, the greatest excitement is being the, as well as being the writer, is being the first reader. I I think it would stifle me if I was to sit down. And I have massive respect for people that plan. And you know, I've um, I've I've looked um, or spoken in the past to people like you know. I know Joe Nadine is a meticulous planner and really yep. organised, and it makes perfect sense what she does. Marcus Sedgwick, for example, that who's a brilliant author for young adults and, and adults. His plans are often like works of art. They're beautiful. You know, Justin Somper, who wrote the Vampirates series, used to fill his entire wall with post-it notes and string. And Do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, absolutely. If I tried to do that, I tried to do it when I started writing and I never wrote a word because I just felt like it stifled me. For me, the yeah. joy is, is experiencing the roller coaster for the first time. 
it sounds like a Stephen King approach. I'm I'm reading on writing at the moment, and that's that's very much what he talks about. And exactly as you say, being your first reader, yeah. um, and as somebody who does it differently, yeah, I'm I'm always interested in what works for different people. But I mean, I, you you described. I mean, you always do this, but you described the beginning of when the sky falls so well. Did it always start that way with the boy kind of moving against the crowd? Uh, initially, there was a prologue, um, which was really the middle of the novel, which was when the bombs were falling uh, for the first time. And I, I love a good prologue. I, it's a technique that I've, I've used quite a lot in the past. I enjoy it. I like it as a reader. Um, but my editor, Charlie Shepard, who is, I am, I just having the, the best time being edited by her. It's, it's wonderful. She, she was adamant. Uh, and I, what I've learned very quickly in working with Charlie is to listen to her because Charlie knows best. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, so you you did the prologue, and then yeah. then you had had the yeah. story going, and and is the story as it now stands pretty much the one that unfurled as you were writing it? It is, yeah. I mean, I think for, for structurally, yes. I think what you know, so the 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 story develops as in this this angry young boy arrives in London. He's sent to live with this rather gruff middle aged woman called Mrs F, who runs the local zoo, which is now a shadow of its former self because a lot of the animals have either been shipped out or, or, or killed because of rationing. And the only thing that's left is is this uh, rather surly, old, aggressive silverback ape called Adonis, who really is a mirror image of, of Joseph, to be honest, of the boy. He's, he's as angry and as abandoned as the boy is. But their friendship develops. And it's an, it was a really wonderful one to write because obviously it's a non-verbal friendship which yeah. is not something that I've written before. So what I found that that took several drafts because the layering of that took time. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what, what we needed by the end of the book, the bombs have fallen and the reader needs to have this moral conundrum that, that, that Joseph has, which is when the bombs do fall and that rifle does end up in his hands, would he and could he possibly pull the trigger on the one thing in his life that's possibly shown him love? Do you know what I mean? So it it really did take, if I'm honest, probably four or five drafts to to layer up that relationship to an extent that by the time you got to page 295, you, you, you were with them, you were there with them. Yeah. And that's where Charlie was instrumental. Brilliant. I mean, it, it, we come back to um, what we were sort of saying at the beginning about what can you put in a book for children, and Ooh. and you there you go. You know, can can a child kill a sentient creature that a yeah. child loves? It's it's it is important to me that you know. I mean, I get really cross when people talk about issues books. You mm. know, because for me there is no such thing as an issue book. Every book is an issue book. You know, there's often people say, oh, it's an issue book, and what they mean by that is it won't sell. <laughs> uh, and I just think that's nonsense because if you look at one of the biggest books of the last decade for young adults, which is John Green's Fault in Our Stars, if yeah. you were to take that book and explain in a nutshell what it was, you, people would just go, bingo, issue book, cancer yeah, book, leukemia yeah. book, you know? So it, 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 it's a little bugbear of mine, you know? It's, you know, you, 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 every book has issues. Every book has thematic challenges. And I think that's, Without it, you're left with something that's pretty damn vacuous, really. <laughs> okay, well, this brings me neatly to your day job, which is as yeah. a as a book marketer, um, and I'm interested in so many aspects of that. Um, 
I, I often feel that as as the author, we are the one person on the team who's not there at the team meetings. And so often I get a cheery email going, we all think this cover looks great or we all think this tagline will work. What do you think? Um, but of course, you're on both sides of it. So yeah. can you just tell me a little bit about about what it is that you do and, and working with yeah. David Fickling Books? So. Three days a week for the last seven years now, I've worked for David Fickling Books and I am their sales and marketing director. So uh, DFB is, is it's quite a heavily sort of curated list, I guess you would say. I mean, I've been really lucky. I've worked at Transworld and Random House and Simon & Schuster and Bloomsbury Children's Books as well. And often at those lists, you'd be publishing anything from 20 to 30 books a month. Whereas at DFB, we publish 35, maybe 40 books a year. So it's yeah. a really heavily curated list. We are very choosy about what we publish. David's reputation, as as many people will know, is based on editorial excellence. You know, yeah. this is the man who who discovered Philip Pullman and Mark Haddon and Jenny Downham uh, and SF Said and so many wonderful writers for all ages. And so I I actually feel like I've got the best job really in publishing in the. I'm not a salesman, you know, I'm a book lover, do you know what I mean? And I'm a bookseller, so, you know, I, did, I worked for Ottica's bookshops for five years and really I see the job I do now as an extension of what I did 15 years ago as, as a bookseller in that I rave about books that I'm passionate about, you know, yeah. and, 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 and I built my, without sounding like an idiot, I just, it really matters to me. My reputation is is professionally is based on, on advocating books that I genuinely feel passionate about. You can't walk into Waterstones or Amazon or a supermarket or an independent and say to them that every book is going to be massive for them because it just doesn't yeah. work like that. Everyone's Absolutely. market and clientele is very different. So what I pride myself on is no, is, is thinking what that I know what will work book best for each customer, if you know what I mean. So um, that's my job is to make noise, is to uh, infuse, make noise, acquire. I mean, I'm really lucky because it's a smallish team there. There's probably only about 10 or 12 of us. You know, I'm, I'm a big part of the acquisition process, the design process. That's the lovely thing about working at a small independent publisher. You don't get put in a box. You get allowed to, 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 to get, to get yeah, stuck into every facet of the publishing process. Yeah, and, and it does really fascinate me, as I say. So an editor presumably decides that this is a book that they, he or she, often she, could um, could really get behind. And mm -hmm. then they take it to some kind of acquisitions meeting and you're sitting at the table. Um, and I'm assuming because you're the one who's going to have to sell it into bookshops ultimately, that's your your thoughts are important. And and what what are you thinking when when the editor's describing the book? I mean, I think I think what we do at DFB is very different from what we've done at, at other publishers. You know, again, the difference at DFB is that it's about the voice. You know, yeah. I mean, listen, publishing is a business, and we all know this. And and that's that's the thing that that often creates the um, what's the word, the tension in me. Because you know, to be honest, I'm I'm twenty books into a career now, and while I've been very lucky to get nice reviews and to win awards commercially. I haven't I haven't cut through and and yeah. my concern as a writer is how for how long am I going to be viable to a publisher how long are they going to look at me and say we can take a risk on you because we are obsessed as an industry I feel with the bright new shiny things with the debuts there's nothing that booksellers and publishers love than a debut because 
There's no book scan to trip you up. Previous yes. performance. Yes. There's a fresh new voice, a fresh new PR and marketing story. I think what, what we love at DFB is to try and grow people's reputations. You know, Philip Pullman didn't write uh, Northern Lights. This is his first book. You know, Mallory Blackman's first book wasn't Knots and Crosses. Jacqueline yes. Wilson's first book wasn't the story of Tracy Beaker. It, it, it's it's ignorant and wrong to assume that a writer is going to come out the blocks like that that hideously talented man David Alman did. You know, <laughs> come out with with Skelly. You know, with but Skelly, even, you know, yeah. but David would David would tell you that he'd been writing for a long time before that. Do you know what I mean? So, you know, there yeah. are exceptions to the rule, of course. But it's what's interesting at DFB is that we we try to judge it on the voice because we we know that our reputation is built on editorial excellence. So if the hope is always that if you go into a bookshop and say genuinely, yes, I know this author has had four books, five books, eight books, two books out that haven't commercially performed well, but trust me, this book is special, then then hopefully that is listened to. You know, Music to my ears. Yeah this, yeah, this was the conversation I was having with Natasha yesterday. It was exactly the same thing from, from, from an author's perspective and, and her as a scout as well, but exactly that. But um, mm. so many of, of the great authors that we think about, just as you were saying, um, required their publisher to have and keep faith in them for a while for it to work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but but sure. there is the, the, the terrible kind of sales figure. Um, sort but of this is the thing. Sometimes I, do, sometimes I do have to be that person that says... This is a concern for me, you know, this, you know, because it is, you know, we have to be realistic at the same time in that when I go into Waterstones or an indie or a supermarket or any any arm of the publishing or, or retail world, they are going to look at past performance. So, you know, it, 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 we have to have honest conversations with our authors about about and it's about educating. There is so, sometimes one of the worst things about publishing is, is the lack of. Com- honest conversations between publisher and author it's like an yes. awful silence that doesn't happen oh Do you know I, I know mean? yeah I completely um, know and and as, as authors we've got fantastically good imaginations so we we, we oh, know what we're not being told I'd much rather be told it <laughs> I mean I, I just think you know that if I've learned anything about about being a writer it, it's don't walk away at the end of a contract having not said everything that you wanted to say or ask every question that you wanted to ask even if that runs the risk of you being labeled as that in inverted commas that author you know because we you know it's a business as well this you know most authors will want to write full time and if that's the case then oh my goodness you've got a mountain ahead of you so you've yeah you've got to you know even you know i was lucky enough to sell terry pratchett's books and, and, and Terry still treated it as an industry. It was very important to me. He had very high professional standards. And that was one of the many things that made him successful. Lee Child, another. You know, of course he takes care in his craft and the greatest of his artistic integrity in what he does. But also he knows that's his business. That's his brand. So and it's when, about when you say treating it like a business, do you, do you mean in terms of the marketing or in terms of the regularity with which you put out a book? Both of those things, I think, you know, you know, listen, David, David is brilliant because he, he, he is, he tempers everything I say. This is David Ficklin, you know, because I will say it's so important for a children's writer to have a book a year, at least, because you've only got, if you're writing eight to 12, by the time that two years down the line, that young person is probably moving on to the next thing up the age range. Right. Yeah. And David will say, yes, Phil, that's true. But an author can only write as quick as they can write. 
And so it's good because it tempers me. You know, I've worked at publishing houses where, you know, Transworld was an amazing place to learn my trade because you were working with Jilly Cooper and Bill Bryson and, and Lee Child and Monica Allen. Do you, know, do you know what I mean? It was like hit after hit after hit after hit Pratchett. You know, Andy McNabb, it was like, it was like a who's who of commercial big hitters. So that was great in terms of teaching me as a salesperson about momentum and about brand awareness and things like that. But you've also got to acknowledge that writers, some writers take longer, you know. Um, Philip Pullman being one of them sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Philip isn't a, anything like a, a book a year. I mean, look what he's produced. His output in the last three or four years has been exceptional, you know, especially when you consider the quality. It's, it, it is difficult cognitive dissonance I guess is a way of describing it isn't it in that you want to write from your soul you want to to achieve that that level of of tension that you're talking about with um with when the sky falls with you know can can this boy kill this creature that he's come to love you want to create that but you also want to get the marketing right get get on the schedule and yeah. and those those almost equal pressures might be facing you as an yeah. it is but um, you've got to yeah i think it's again it's about relationships it's about i mean i'm working now you know i've been very very lucky i, I i've i've worked at, uh sorry been published by by penguin and by hachette and by scholastic uh, barrington stoke but it's interesting i'm now published uh, on when the sky falls is with anderson press and yeah. um and Anderson, you know, are an indie. They're probably best known for things like Elmer, the Patchwork Elephant, and publishing Tony Ross's picture books for, for, for decades, and David McKee, people like that. Uh, and, and they're a smallish team, but they punch above their weight, like DFB does. And, and I just, I, I made a pact with myself that I was going to bend my back, and I would, I would tell people really honestly how important this book w was to me, and this is what I'll do. And, and it's about, as a writer... It's about realising that, I think anyway, you can't, unless you are in, in that top 2% where you are a puffing superstar, you know, and they are going to put that machine into operation for you, that PR, sales, yeah. marketing machine. Your job as a writer is to get out there and do a lot of that yourself. And I don't mean for four weeks while, while the book is new. I'm talking about all the time. For mm -hmm. me, it's about if I want, you know, and I... I, my, I don't earn the majority of my salary through writing. It's really still through publishing. But I get out there and I do it because I want to be published. And I think you have to engage. Yes, your publisher should be doing things for you. Of course they should. But it's, but it's a relationship and it's one that you have to nurture and you have to get out there and bend your back. There's very few things that will catch on if the author's done very little off their own back, I feel. Yeah. Yeah, it's a tricky one. I mean, I certainly feel that um, you need to be at the very least findable so that if people are yeah. interested, they can find out more about Absolutely. you. And and I mean, on the children's author side, I think very lucky that sort of access to schools to, to talk to school children and, and access to, to booksellers and yes, um, fostering every relationship you possibly can definitely helps which is interesting when you know we're naturally on the whole quite shy retiring types who like being stuck behind the computer for a lot of the day absolutely listen i, I get it's it's a weird thing isn't it you know there is so much pressure now to be a song and dance person and and i you know i won't lie to you i've been i've been at publishers where we've turned books down uh because an author really was just so hesitant to do anything because they were you know whether it's because they were shy or they just didn't want to do it because 
if you're publishing 30 books a month, what's going to make that book stand out, you know? And if the author's not not able for whatever reason to do that, it's it's a handicap. It's it's a it's a regressive step at the start of their career. Something for people to bear in mind. Hard, um, isn't it? It's awful. <laughs> yeah, don't be a writer. Um, <laughs> you're 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 so good at, as I say, at describing um, elements of the process. Um, just quickly before we finish, I'd I'd love to hear you talk about how you create a character. If you don't mm. mind doing that. No, absolutely. I think it's it's um, ag- ag- again. There's something of the wing and the prayer about the way I work. I, I tend to work in basic starting emotions, for starters. So, you know, when I started writing When the Sky Falls, Joseph is, is the lead protagonist. He's 12. He's angry. I knew why he was angry. I didn't know all the details about why he was angry. And I knew where he was heading geographically. But aside from that, I didn't know a right lot about him as I started the process. Again, it's okay. it's that thing. I mean, I, I have worked differently in the past. What I have done, because my background, or one of my great passions is, is, is drama, is uh, theatre. Not so much stuff like Shakespeare and the classics again. I grew up in Hull and we had um we had we'd still it's still there now there's a tr- there's a, a theater company called Hull Truck Theater Company and throughout the 1980s and 90s the artistic director there was a gentleman called John Godber who for for decades was the third most performed playwright in Britain behind Shakespeare wow. and, and Alan Akebourne that's amazing but but what he wrote about was he wrote about people like me like I grew up in Hull and Hull's quite geographically isolated and we see ourselves as being quite working class and northern and gritty and isolated geographically. And so he was writing about bouncers and rugby league players and teachers and hairdressers and supermarket workers. Mm-hmm. And um, that that excited me in a way that, for example, Narnia or other the classics, you know, Anne of Green Gear, you know, that, that stuff wasn't for me, but yeah, bouncers and uh, on uh, you know up and under, which was a play about rugby. It, it that spoke to me because because they were my people and I recognised yeah. myself in that. So what I learned from, from I mean I used to eat up everything that he wrote and I bought his play texts. I still have them on my shelf. Uh, so he taught me about dialogue. He taught me about rhythm. He taught me about storytelling. You know, so sometimes when I'm character doing characters especially if the character's not going so well, I have in the past done a lot of hot seating of them. And it's something that I talk about a lot in school is, you know, when, when you're rehearsing a play, the director will often get his actors to sit in an empty chair. And when they be, sit in the empty chair, they become the character and you answer questions about them. And by doing so, you put flesh on, on the character's bones. And that's mm. that's a device. That's a uh, uh, something that I've found really useful in the past. But I've got to be honest, the further I go down my career, it's about it's back to that layering in a way. Do you know what I mean? It's like often my first draft is about getting the story out and yeah, seeing if that story same. narrative, that arc works. And then second, third, fourth, fifth, however many drafts it takes will be about layering, you know, layering those characters, bringing them to life, making sure their motivation is right. But I don't think about it before I write too heavily. Again, I just, I go with it. I, I want to be excited as I write it. And that's how it excites me. Brilliant. Um, I love that. Uh, you've given lots of tips already, but um, I usually get guests to to leave us with with one particular tip that they might have for aspiring writers. So um, obviously we've got reading, but um, what would your your tip be? 
Um, a couple of really brief things. Um, it's not even my advice. It's Marcus Sedgwick. I think I've mentioned Marcus already. Marcus is, uh, you know, has been one of our best writers for for children for 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 two decades now. And and Marcus just once said to me, his only rule for writing is don't be boring, which uh, <laughs> it sounds like the most basic thing. But if you sit down and think about that, it it breaks down across every facet of the writing process, whether it's character, whether it's plot whether it's dialogue, whether it's uh, symbolism, whatever it might, themes, whatever, you know, it, it, it rings true. So I, I do always have that in my head. Uh, and for me, I, I think it's, um, it comes back to that thing of be your first reader. You know, it's, it's that thing of, I don't write for children, I write for me. And, and, and so it's about being, it's, for me, it's about being instinctive. If I am being entertained as I as I write, then so far my instincts have been right. You know, it's I don't write for children; I write for me. And I think, especially, that's really good advice. Especially, well, when you're being published, right? Working in publishing, the Hunger Games hits, and then all of a sudden, every single submission you get is is a dystopian uh, thriller. Yeah. Yes. But you can yes. see within five pages which writers' hearts are in it and which one are chasing the money. You know, yes. so so you you know don't do it, don't chase the market. Write the thing that you are passionate about. But also, once you've become published, there's a real danger that you start suddenly get into panic mode about oh god, I've got to write what I've got to write what the publisher wants me to write. You yeah. Know? And again, I, I have David Ficklin's voice ringing in my ear, which is like that's that's the steps towards disaster, really, because the, you won't feel the writer in that book. You know, we we have writers that one book is young adult and me the salesman goes well book two has to be young adult then and goes david says no 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 it can be whatever that writer so we have writers that go YA, you know young ad sorry YA middle grade picture book and then back to YA. yes and, and although that does create challenges for me as a salesperson if the voice is good enough then then it then it will endure it will cut through write with passion yeah <laughs> and and it always comes back to voice from what you were saying yeah it is it's always voice yeah whatever person you're writing in it's always voice that's brilliant thank you so much phil thank you lovely to speak to you i'd like to thank christopher pett for editing and producing this episode of pre-published you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and if you've enjoyed this episode please leave us a review you can also join us on Twitter at Prepub Podcast and find me at my children's books website, which is sophiabennett.com, or my adult crime series website, which is sjbennettbooks.com. <laughs>